Alright, uh, we actually made the decision to extend the Easter sermon series by one week. And one of the reasons I decided to do that is I realized that we don't often hear sermons on the Ascension. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the Ascension. Um, and, that, and so, and then I've talked to many people who say we, we don't. And so it's kind of interesting that we would stop at the resurrection and not take time to discuss the beauty and the purpose of the ascension of Christ himself. So we're going to be continuing in the writings of Luke, but today we'll be in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And so we'll have an opportunity today to see the beauty and the power of the ascension as it grants us the Holy Spirit and the purpose and hope for our mission, which is what we are called to be in the church. And so this morning, what I would love for you to get from, from this um, is that Jesus Christ, in his exaltation, remember we talked about exaltation last week, is that in his humanity he experienced humiliation. But in his resurrectedness, and as the, the divinity in him came pouring forth and resurrected newness of life, did he lose his humanity? Did humanity just go away? Did it get swallowed in divinity? No, it didn't. In fact, he's still tangibly human. However, it is an exalted form of and so the exaltation is as important to us as was the humiliation. Because humiliation without exaltation is what? Just a dead revolutionary. Which is what they worried was the problem, remember? Remember on the way to Emmaus, they were discussing, they said, have you not heard, do you not understand what's happened? The guy that we had hoped would be the Redeemer, he lays dead in the grave. And Jesus said, well, I don't think you boys understand we better start at Moses, which is Genesis, and take a little time and make our way through the law and the prophets. And so what he did is he revealed that the whole story was about him. And the resurrection was in there, and the ascension is in there, and their hope had not failed. And so he was revealing himself to be the Redeemer. So um, we recognize that, that Jesus Christ, in his exaltation, in his ascension, which is a particular part of his exaltation, provides the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit today in the Presbyterian Church, but it'll be safe, I promise. <laughs> and the promise of his return, which is also part of his exaltation, by the way, um, to equip the saints to bear witness to the kingdom of God. This is very critical because I think that we and many churches are highly at risk of forgetting what our mission is and getting tangled up into a host of things that actually seem good, they seem helpful, but ultimately carry us very far from our mission. And so, am I going to reconcile all of that today? Well, not in the time that we have a lot of it. So, a lot of this is going to be something that you're going to have to think about and chew on and wrestle with. And by all means, please, if you've got something that you're wrestling with, come talk to us as elders. And we want to walk with you through that because that's part of the discipleship process, isn't it? Sometimes the discipleship process is about things that confront us and maybe even confuse us for a season. Anybody ever read the book of Revelation? Um, anybody ever read Leviticus and try to figure out what was going on there sometimes? Yeah, so things do confront us, and they, they do push us off of our secure place sometimes, and that's a good thing. So we want to walk with you in that in case there's something going on. In addition, there's going to be a number of concepts that come up that there's no way we can exhaust them this morning. Kingdom of God alone, it, there's books and books and books and books been written on what the word, the, the phrase even means. So we're going to hopefully help 
uh, with that sum by giving it a, a, a short definition here this morning. So as we do that, as we think about this, this key truth, which let me repeat, is Jesus Christ in his exaltation, in his ascension, provides the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise of his return to equip the saints to bear witness to the kingdom of God. So with that in mind, I ask you this question. The question I think I've asked here before, and I think it's a very pertinent question, a question we must return to. What is your purpose in this life? Now, all of you can't answer, so it is a rhetorical question, so don't just yell stuff out. But you have to think about that, don't you? Because so often I think we avoid the question, don't we? We just let the days fly by and we hope to get to a place of some sort of stability and we go, I'll think about that once I get done with school. I'll think about that once I move on to the next job. I'll think about that once I get into a house that I really like. I'll think about that once my kids are a certain age. And does it ever come? Does the status in our life ever bring us to the point that we finally are able to go, okay, what is my purpose in this life? And what I find interesting about this is what, what actually helps you define the answer? Is it your station in life? Is it your job? Does your job ultimately define your purpose? I'd hope not. Um, is, it, is it your family? Is it whether or not you have children? Is it whether or not you're married? Does that define your purpose? Is it that you live in a certain city or a certain neighborhood? Does that define your purpose? Or does the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ define your purpose? Because if, it, if that doesn't, then you're standing on shifting sand. Now, do all those other things play into how you live out that purpose? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you live in certain neighborhoods, there's only certain ways that you might be able to be missional. If you live 20 miles from your nearest neighbor or 10 miles from your nearest neighbor, um, you're going out on a prayer wall. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I want you to do that. Uh, it's going to be a little, a little more difficult. So you just have those things actually create the creative environment in which you live out what is actually your purpose as defined by the crucifixion the resurrection, the ascension, and the coming again of Christ. And I have to confess and tell you that too much of my life has not been defined by that. And I am, as a pastor, still trying to have that be what shapes me and not how many of you find your way to chairs, not how many of you actually came back from Easter last week, not how many of you think I'm a great preacher, not how many of you uh, want to do the things I would have you to do. And so understand that it's also a difficulty and a struggle for me too. And so pray for me in that. Because the more that that reality of Christ defines me, the greater the purpose will be come, come to fruition. So, again, I want us to turn to the shorter catechism question. Uh, again, I didn't change the language. I figured we wrote that works in the first time. We might as well stick um, and so, question 28 says, wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? And the answer is that Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. And all of that is his exaltation, and all of that represents the glory of God. 
In fact, we probably could have just chose the first question in the catechism, which is, what is the chief end of man? What is it? And that's, that last piece is the part that I, I've said this before. I think we struggle with so much. And the reason I think that we don't often enjoy him as we should is because we're not having our lives be defined by the right things. We're trying to enjoy him on our terms instead of his terms. And so as we look at this this morning, my hope is that we'll have a clearer understanding of what is the mission of the church, because this is critical for us. Because I want to tell you something I'm concerned about. I want to talk to you as family. You know, we're trying to sell this land so we can get in a building. And my fear is that that building is going to be, um, is going to prohibit us in mission. Now, how could it do that in a vast number of ways? That we would say, finally, we have our own place that we can meet. And because we're paying the rent on this thing seven days a week, we better have activities in this thing all the time. I didn't give for that nice carpet for no one to walk on it. And so my fear is that we will become inwardly focused and think that that building was the purpose all along. And it isn't, is it? It's not at all. In fact... Hopefully what that building will afford us the ability to do is better do the mission to which we have been called. And that it won't be just this inward focused, always filled with church activities where we get to hang out with safe Christians in a safe environment and play it safe. That's my fear. And I don't want us to fall into that trap. And so, I'm also concerned that we um, sometimes think that there is, you know, Cameron's been here about seven, eight months, all right? We've kind of let him, you know, we, we've listened to some of this stuff and tolerated some of this stuff for a while. It's cute. But when are we going to have Christian Shuffleboard for 50 and over? Because that, I want, a, I want an upward Christian Shuffleboard league. We're not going to keep school. Everybody's a winner. 50 and above. So you're not going to be able to play. I'm sorry. Now, I'm kind of joking, but there's a host of things that I think that we were hoping, maybe, maybe, I don't know, I haven't heard, but I hope that you're okay with the ordinary means of grace. I hope that you are uh, excited about the fact that we preach the Word of God and we see it made visible in the, in the Lord's Supper and when we have the opportunity in baptism. I hope that what you're excited about is being equipped for the work of the ministry so that you could live out what your purpose ought to be, which is to be an ambassador of reconciliation where you live, work, and play, not where you go to church. And so my hope is that what you desire is to be trained up so that you can go out, not entertained so you can stay in. And the best way I can think about it, and I don't mean this to be insulting, but I am not the activities director on the cruise line of your Christian life. It is not my job to make sure that you have a host of activities to choose from so that you can say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I need something on Friday at midnight. A small group meets on Friday at midnight. And if you, you're not going to do that, I'm going to another church and find one that does. Well, good luck on that one. But what I don't want to do is encourage consumerism in this. Consumerism is absolutely deadly to the Christian life. Because it, it tangles us up. And it looks so good, though, doesn't it? 
And it sounds so good sometimes, doesn't it? To have all these choices and opportunities that you can choose from. And that doesn't, it's not incumbent upon you. It doesn't mean that you're responsible for anything unless you're a leader. Who has to answer to me for what you did or didn't do. Instead of being able to be creative and have to answer to your membership vows. See, people have asked me, well, what happens if you just let people kind of do what they feel passionate about and want to do? I mean, aren't they going to get off the rails heretically? I'm sorry, has no small group in the history of the Christian church gotten off the rails and heretical with the greatest obstruction? No, their membership vows, your membership vows, should hold you fast. If you get outside of the doctrinal things that you confess to, that's where church discipline and all of its beauty comes in to restore you so that you can get back on purpose and on mission. Amen? That doesn't mean we always take it. It's there. It's there for a reason. So, as we look to the text this morning, um, remember, Luke's gospel um, is essentially salvation accomplished. As we look at the book of Acts, it is salvation applied through the coming of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church through the witnesses of the people of God. And so as we turn to the text, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, what we first want to recognize is the mission, uh, the message of the mission. And the message of the mission is the kingdom of God. So, let's read the text. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Let me pause for just a second. Now, Theophilus, um, more than likely, was someone of high esteem in the Roman, probably Roman governance of some kind. Now, why do we say that? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, he's referred to as Magnificent Theophilus, which is a term of honor and endearment uh, that, shows, uh, that shows that Luke recognizes his position. Now, Theophilus means either friend of God or dear to God. And so he may have been a new convert that was trying to better understand the story, or he could have been someone who was just interested in the story and Luke was trying to lay it out for him. Which makes it beautiful that he would give him a volume on salvation accomplished and a volume on salvation applied. And so as we read on, uh, we read just in the same way Theophilus does to seek to learn. I love the way Luke says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. See, when Jesus died, though he said it was finished, was the mission finished? No, in fact, it was really just beginning for the people of God. And when he rose from the grave, and now when we see that he's ascended, that work continues in and through us, doesn't it? We are the instruments, the vessels, the ambassadors of reconciliation. We have a unique purpose. We have been fashioned for something that is beautiful to continue the work that Christ began. That which he began to do and say, word and deed, we the church are to continue. Amen? And so, I love it that he phrases it that way because it would have been easy, I think, for him to say, I have, I've already told you all that Jesus did and that's all that really matters. No, it's the ongoing work of the Spirit in and through the church that continues to matter. He goes on, he says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, it's, it's interesting, the Trinitarian nature of what we're going to see in Acts chapter 1 through 11, but notice that it is through the Holy Spirit that Christ empowers and speaks to the disciples. That shows that he is recognizing the Trinitarian nature and, and within the economy of redemption, each of the members' unique work. He was essentially saying that he, he and his humanity needed the power of the Spirit as much as anyone did. And if Jesus, who was perfect, needed the power of the Holy Spirit, how much you and I, who are so far from being perfect. And so he makes it very clear. He also says he granted to those whom he has chosen, again, pointing to the sovereignty of God, to choose whom he wills on which to build his church. And so often this is where I think we get way off course. How, how do we choose and laud a leader? Who gets to speak at the conferences? The guy who's been grinding it out in, in, in the backwoods of Kansas somewhere, same church for 30 years, it's got 50 people in it. Does he get welcomed? Hey, brother, come share with us how to be faithful for 30 years. No, we get the hotshot kid who threw a church down in the middle of Atlanta and after six months has 500 people showing up. That's who we want to hear from. And what's weird is we ask him to speak on a panel about parenting. He's got a two-year-old. I'm glad you guys got that. I was worried about you for a second. Why don't we hear from somebody who has a two-year-old about parenting? No disrespect to him. He might be a very wise and right guy. I just told you a true story, by the way. And so, so often we laud leaders, we choose leaders based on their ability to entertain and woo us. Instead of their ability to point to Christ and evidence their submission to their, in faithfulness to the one who saved them just as he would save you. And so Christ straight away says, these are the men that I have chosen. I have Pick them, whether you like them or not. And it is on them that I'll build my church. And this gets picked up in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16, when it says that Christ gave some to be apostles and prophets and pastor teachers. And why did he give them? Does anybody know the rest of the story there? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He didn't say to basically be gopher on the love boat. I don't know if you have got that. That's a passing reference. I hate that. Such a great show. <laughs> Captain Stooping and all. Anyway, I digress. So, so it doesn't change. It is still Christ who must choose his leaders and empower them. And how do you know if, a, if one has been chosen by Christ to be a leader of a church. For those of you who will, maybe you won't stay here, you'll go somewhere else, or you'll move somewhere and need to choose a church, always, always, always find out, is he equipping the saints? Because if he's not equipping the saints and giving away the ministry, then it's about him. And it will be gone in a generation. Instead of continuing to permeate like leaven which is a description of the kingdom. So he mentions that 
in Christ's resurrection, what does he do for 40 days? He talks to them about this thing called the kingdom of God. Now, as I alluded to earlier, this would be a very difficult thing for us to unpack in total. But I do want to give us a couple of tent pegs to be able to think about it well. And I'll give you a quote in just a moment from Her Herman Body, who I think sums up what the kingdom of God is well. But one thing I would ask you is, what would you think, if it's a kingdom and it's of God, where do you think God would be? In it or outside of it? In it. Remember what we learned back in September when we were going through the book of Exodus. What is the main thing that God desires? To be in the midst of his people with all of the barriers to worshiping him removed. It's the end of the story. It's glorification. So the kingdom of God is where he is and where we are free ultimately to worship him. And where, does, where do you think the kingdom of God began? Well, some theologians say it began at creation. I would agree with them in the sense that he created it, he continues to rule and reign over it, and he looked at it and he said it was good. And he was also not satisfied to let the fall have reign. He would interject and put himself in that kingdom again, which is why when Jesus comes, you have Mark declaring the kingdom of God is here. So the beauty of the kingdom is that it's not a place, it's a person. It is dwelling with a person. It is being redeemed so that we can enjoy that person. And so, it's not political. It's not geographic. It's not, it's none of those things. And yet, what do we often in the church seem to be fighting for? Politics and real estate. I think we're missing it. What's interesting about this phrase, the kingdom of God, is it's mentioned five times in Matthew, 15 times in the book of Mark, two times in the book of John, and 31 times in the book of Luke. It's pretty important. So I would encourage you, if you want to study what Luke meant by kingdom of God, is to go back and look at those 31 verses. I'm not going to put you through that here now. But it would be a great study for you to help kind of augment what I'm talking about. Because the way that it's referred to in Luke is that it's a message, essentially, that the church will propagate. It's good news. Oftentimes Christ says, I came to share with you the good news of the kingdom of God. What's the good news? That the barriers between us and God are being removed in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone, so that we can enjoy Him. Short guy has a question. And he also refers to it um, as, as something that must be entered into. Now, how do you think you would enter into the kingdom of God? That essentially means you're entering into the very presence of God. Remember what we learned from Romans chapter 5, justification. That it is through the confession of our sin and the confession that Christ alone is Savior by faith alone, through no work of ours. We enter the kingdom through our confession. This is the way in which we step into the presence of God. Remember in Romans 5 how he said, you are now at peace with God to be able to come before him and to stand in the grace that has been given to you. How many of you would love to be able to stand in grace? 
so you've always fallen upon your own failures and stumbling upon the rocks of the world. So the kingdom of God is good news that we are to be restored to God and we enter into that kingdom through our confession of our own sin and of Christ alone as Savior. And then the kingdom actually progresses through people coming to know him. Now listen to me, church. Listen to the Christ community. I long for the day when we will celebrate those who come to Christ because of our missional efforts. That includes our children in the children's ministry who come to a place where they say, I want to be known as a Christian. And they are able to articulate a cogent and beautiful, simple faith entering into the kingdom. But I also want to someday be able to celebrate because you have befriended your neighbor, because you have uh, walked with a co-worker, because you have walked with a family member who's struggling, because you have walked with someone in the name of Christ, evidencing to them the beauty of dwelling with God and helping them to understand the confession. I want and long for being able to celebrate that. I am utterly I shouldn't say utterly, that's probably too strong. I am not as interested in lateral transfer. I don't care what the gifts of the individual are coming in here. I'm not against that, don't get me wrong. I saw Alyssa's face, she's like, we're transferring here. I'm just saying that that's, that's okay and that helps. But if that's our main deal, that we're going to grow by going out and proving that we're a better church than, than some other church down the street, come on. Because we offer a certain style of this or a certain program of that. I'm telling you, I think the Christian shuffleboard thing will be hot. <laughs> Especially since we don't keep school. Um, <clears throat> I'm not critiquing up. My kids are running out of stand, so don't send me any emails. I'm like, um, so I, I want for us to be a church that longs to see what matters most to the kingdom. I want us to grow by what is actually a blessing to the Lord our God and not evidence of our further division and failure to love one another well. My hope is that that is yours as well. So let's hear what old Herman Bobbitt has to say. He was a Dutch Reformed guy who was a contemporary of Abraham Kuyper, if you know who he is, and he wrote uh, a significant number of works on theology, his being Reformed dogmatics, and, and Bonifate was known for being clear, whereas sometimes Kuyper could not be as clear in what he said. So listen to what he, what, how he describes the kingdom. He says, Jesus introduces a new understanding of the kingdom. Now, let me pause for just a second. He's not saying that this is new in comparison to the scriptures, but new in comparison to what the people thought. So it's a new concept to what they were thinking. It is religious, ethical, not political. It is present in repentance, faith, and rebirth. And it is yet to come as a full eschatological reality. So the kingdom has an already and not yet component. The already is that God is sovereign and he reigns. And that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father where he too reigns. But we don't realize it in full. It's not that we can worship unfettered just yet, can we? So the not yet is coming. 
The God of Israel, whom Jesus recognizes and confesses as his God, is above all king, the Lord of heaven and earth. But he is also father in heaven, whose kingly rule is a father over his children. His kingdom is simultaneously a family and a community. Kingship and the fatherhood of God do not compete, but reinforce each other. The kingdom must both be sought and received as a gift that has as its content the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and eternal life. So what is your view of the kingdom of God? Now let me tell you how you know. Your view of the kingdom of God is based on how you live. If you think that um, political wrangling is ultimately going to change this world, I believe you are Don Quixote chasing the limits. If you think that you can um, ultimately build the kingdom, expand the kingdom by making more programs in the church, you too are Don Quixote. Anybody can gather a crowd. We, we see that all the time. Did, did anybody watch the documentary on Scientology? Oh my. How anybody followed L. Ron Hubbard is beyond my imagination. That dude was crazy. And showed it and said it. But he gathered an empire, not just a crowd, but an empire that would abuse and harm people for years and years and are still doing it, by the way, evaded taxes and essentially has gotten away with murder. So you can gather a crowd. But what I'm interested in and what the Lord is interested in is a biblical view of the kingdom, which is that we would missionally pursue the neighbors that we are called to love, which are a variety of people, not just your nearest physical neighbors, but of all kinds, that we would do so with the gifts that we've been given, that we would do so as a church, united and using its gifts together for that purpose and that thing alone. And not get tangled up in all of the other strings and all of the other things that ultimately are not important. Because that mission alone it's easy, isn't it, Sam? Pursuing sinners? Come on, that's, that's easy, right? That's shooting fish in a barrel, isn't it? <laughs> Giving our message. Won't, won't they, all we got to do is tell them, right? And they'll just fall, flip over backwards trying to get in here and tithe. <laughs> well, not based on my experience, maybe I'm just not very good at it. It's harder than it looks. It takes a lot of energy and prayer and dependence and crying out to the Lord on behalf of those that truly care about. And going again and again and again after being rejected again and again and again. Let's turn back to the text and look at verses 4 through 8. So we see the message of the mission is ultimately the kingdom of God. That, that the kingdom would be what we're focused on for our mission. The kingdom is where God is present and where we are able to go in through our confession and redemption of our, our sins and, and salvation of our souls. But there's a means to that. And you'll see that the primary means is the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers the secondary means, which is the witnesses, which is the church itself. So let's look again at the text, verses 4 through 8. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Now this is a quotation from Luke 24, 49. He goes on to say, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Remember, was Jesus involved with the Holy Spirit at his baptism? One of the great texts that proves that modalism just can't be true, if you know what modalism is. You see all three members of the Trinity present. The Father speaks, Jesus is in human form, and the dove descends, which is the Spirit. You can't have all three present at the same time if, if they're different modes. There are three persons, one essence. And so, if Christ needed the Spirit to do His mission, how much more will we? So He's saying to them, the very thing that I needed, I'm going to give to you. The thing that empowered me to do, to make it to the cross, to survive Gethsemane, and to rise again, you too will have. Not in part, but in hope. He goes on to say, verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? That's an interesting phrase. Why do you think they were worried about the kingdom of Israel instead of the kingdom of God that they had heard 30 times prior to this exchange? What do you think they were looking for? A geopolitical power. A place where it would be safe to worship the Lord their God. A place that they could fashion essentially with their own hands and protect, they thought. An earthly kingdom. They were confused, just as we are so often confused. And it goes on. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. Now, what's interesting about this is when, when they are imbued with the Holy Spirit, he says you're going to be witnesses. Well, what is a witness? What is an ambassador? How is that different from sometimes how we think about what it is we're doing in the Christian life? See, a witness is someone who tells of one greater than themselves. An ambassador is one who comes in the name of one greater than themselves. Unfortunately, I think sometimes what we hear from those who stand up here on stages like this, and sometimes even what, what non-Christians hear from you, is that I am greater as I stand before you. Behold the greatness. Instead of pointing beyond ourselves, instead of pointing beyond to the one who is truly great. See, what I love sometimes about our service, not being perfect. Has it, has it been perfect so far? Do we not have that microphone issue? And, and then Jonathan uh, had judgment happening on the little pack inside. And, and, you know, it's just sometimes it feels like this thing could come off the window. Well, you know what's beautiful about that? Because it means we have to point beyond ourselves. Even that evidences our great need for the power of the Holy Spirit. The thing I always tell everybody who's involved is, look, no matter how bad you mess up this week, if the Lord wills, we'll come back and do it again next week. Because, think about us, and how well we do it, and how good we get it. It's about how good God has been to us, how much he has loved us, how much he has given to us, how much he has set us free. 
to be his ambassador. Now, many look at verse 8 as essentially the outline of the book of Acts, is, is that they would, you know, start straight away in Jerusalem, and then they would move on to Judea and Samaria, and then they would begin to head toward the ends of the earth. Well, what's interesting is if you've read the book of Acts, do they make it to the ends of the earth in chapter 28? No, the story continues, doesn't it? Which is one of the reasons why, if you're familiar with the Acts 29 network, I've had a bunch of people say they're so stupid, they're in Acts 29. <laughs> I've checked. Even the apocrypha. No, actually. Well, the reason that they use that, this is not to totally defend everything they've ever done, but the reason that they use that is, is as a recognition of the story continues, we've yet to reach the ends of the earth. And remember, with every the birthing of every new generation, the ends grow farther out, in a sense. A new generation needs to hear yet afresh the gospel. And so he is calling them, empowering them to do his work. And if you had the opportunity, you could study Isaiah 43 in comparison to this. It's a text in which it speak, the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jerusalem, of Israel being witnesses for the truth and the beauty of God throughout the whole world. Now, which covenant is that tied to? So what I love about covenant theology and the beauty of the continuity within the Bible is the Abrahamic covenant. That, that in, in, in the people of God, all nations would be blessed. Now, is that our perspective? As, as you sit here today at Christ Community Church, as one who, if you do, proclaims to be a Christian, is your perspective to see all the nations blessed? And if not, let me say something that I hope rouses you up a little bit. You're out of accord with the Bible. Let me also confess to you, do I go around thinking that I long to see all nations blessed? No. Not near enough. Not like I ought to. Something I have to be reminded of often as well. And so, we have been given a mission, we have been given a purpose. It is founded deep in the Abrahamic covenant. It is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And it continues through the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, we see, as Tim Chester and Johnny Woodrow would say, both men who are part of a um, church movement called the Crowded House in the United Kingdom, both who teach at Porterbrook Seminary, they have written one of the few books that you can find in the Ascension. It's called the Ascension, Humanity and the Presence of God. I would commend it to you. I think it's, a, it's, it's only about 70 or 80 pages. It's a great little volume to better understand the beauty of the Ascension. But here's what they say. The growth of the kingdom is a growth in the extent to which it is populated. How many times have you heard somebody say, we, we, we want to we expand the kingdom of God. We want, to, we want to see the kingdom of God go forward. Which is one of the reasons that we're building a, uh, a gymnasium. The kingdom of God's expanding, right? No. The kingdom of Israel might be, as we understand it. Now it only expands in that it is populated. What grows is the number of people who gladly acknowledge the rule of Christ and so experience that rule as a rule of blessing and freedom. The kingdom expands when we present the gospel to those and they are ultimately set free from sin and death, which was the beauty of the resurrection. They would walk in newness of life and a resurrected life. If that's not what's happening, we aren't expanding anything. 
So, the question I have for us. Why did we get left between now and not yet? Why didn't you just call us all home? Get this thing over with. Why is it that he's given us the Holy Spirit, leaving us to remain between the ages, as it were? Why? Because we have a mission. Because we have a purpose. Because we have been granted the keys to the kingdom. The message of the kingdom of God itself to see people set free. To see the kingdom grow in tangible sons and daughters of the Most High God. If that's not our understanding of who we are as a church, then we're probably more like the Kiwanis Club than the church. Let's turn back to the text, verses 9 through 11. Mm -hmm. So we've been given the message, we've been given the means, and now there's the hope, which is the ascension and the promise of return. Because just like the author of Hebrews confesses, as you look around, does it look like we're winning? Does it look like we're, 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 we're doing really, really well? If you were to read the Wall Street Journal, or if you were to look at any sort of The Economist, or the New Atlantis, or The Atlantic, which I saw, um, and I didn't read the article, but on the cover it said, is it now time for the Jews to leave Europe? And they had a broken star of David. Time Magazine had on its cover a cross and the LBGT alphabet soup after it flag behind it, speaking of the war between uh, them and us, or us and them, whichever way we'll flip that. Same cover was on uh, News Weekly. So are we winning? As the author of Hebrews would say, though it doesn't look like it right now, the Lord our God, Christ, reigns on high. So the battle is not lost. And so, our hope in all of this is not what we see, it's what we know. Listen to what the text says. It says, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let me pause for just a second. The, the cloud represents what we have referred to here and other places as a theophany. What's a theophany? Well, that's evidence of the very presence of God. God was receiving his son. He was essentially saying to him, well done, good and faithful servant. He was receiving him to the right hand of the Father. Remember how Christ got himself into a whole bunch of trouble with the Jews, quoting this reality from Daniel 7. Remember, they got really upset about it. Because they're saying, wait, whoa, 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 now you're saying you're the son of God. And it also echoes in 2 Kings 2. When Elijah rides out on the chariots of fire, unless that's just the rich Mullins quote, I, I get mixed up sometimes, and he turns over power to Elisha to continue the work of the kingdom in the same way as Christ is departing, he is turning over to us the very same mission and power he required. It says, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And what, did, what were these two guys doing here? It's, this, it's, again, probably the two witnesses from Deuteronomy that they would bear witness to something, and they're there to shake the tree, because otherwise 
these boys would have been still staring up at the heavens, not doing the mission that they had just been given. And so they say, listen, quit staring up at the sky and get work. And here's the good news. Jesus is going to come back and make sure it's all finished. And it's not going to depend on you boys. And he'll be back to call his chickens home. And so we have the hope and the beauty of the return of Christ to serve as our assurance that the mission will be completed. God will be glorified. But we don't have the liberty to stand around staring into the sky. We must be about the work of the mission. And one of the things that we are trying to do here at Christ Community is Greg Clemens has been working on an aspect of our website that would allow you, um, if you're participating in something like the Crisis Pregnancy Center or Out of Darkness, I know Sarah Chandler also participates with the Women's Prison Ministry, any of the things that we're involved in and doing, this would be a place where we could go and put some information about what we're doing missionally so that other people in our church, if they're interested in much the same thing, can join in that and can know who to contact. Um, and there will also be places, I, I think, I don't want to write a check, Greg doesn't want to cash here, but there will also be some tips for how to be missional in your neighborhood. There will be tips for how to be missional in your job and all those kinds of things. So we want, we want to make sure that you have a place that you can go and see where we're at work. Um, you may be thinking, well, why don't, why, don't, why don't you just pick something, and we'll just all do it? Well, I'm not going to lie to you either. And so, so I'd much rather you do what it is you're passionate about. I'd much rather you do what it is you're gifted in. And, and I will serve you. I will, I will work to the bone except for my Sabbath on Friday. The other six days are yours. I will work to equip you in whatever it is that you want to do. I will find the resources. I will take the time. We will do whatever is necessary to equip you to be an ambassador of reconciliation. So I don't want you to say, I just, I just didn't know what to do. You can't, that's not an excuse. And I also want to say that I'm trying not to add anything more to your lives. For most of you, you spend a fair amount of your time in your vocation, whether as a stay-at-home mom or as a head basketball coach who works 80 to 100 hours a week. And you might say, well, he needs to get his priorities straight. No, he's got his priorities straight. He's serving kids that he's going to change their lives for eternity. And so I want to make sure that you're equipped to do what you already are doing in the midst of what you're already doing. So if you have questions about that, by all means, come see me. Email me. Let's get together for coffee or lunch or dinner so that you can be equipped to do exactly what it is that you ought to be doing as an ambassador of reconciliation. Because who in the church has the liberty, if they're a believer, to say, well, I'm not, I'm not really an ambassador. That's Cameron's job. He's the ambassador. We're, you know, we, we, uh, we do clean up. No, we're all. If you are a Christian, you have the mission, you've been given the purpose, and everybody's gifted different. For those of you who are cringing right now because you're an introvert and you think what I'm saying is you've got to go out and talk to thousands of people or leave tracks in the bathroom for people to find or to tip with tracks instead of money. No! Not what I'm saying. And my hope, and I said this in the Gospel Fluency class, if every single one of you committed to engaging in 
building a relationship with one person or family that is de-churched, unchurched, broken by church, has never been to the church, and you said, I'm going to take three years to invest in this one person, what do you think this church would look like in three years? It would change it. And that ain't that hard, is it? One. Just one. One family, one person. And so, you all can reach far more than I ever can. And that's the beauty of what Christ is doing here. Remember, he's human. Can he be everywhere at once in his humanity? By him going, the mission expands. By him going, the Spirit comes, and we are all empowered as he is to do greater than even he has done. Amen. All right. So let's hear from F.F. Bruce, who was Scottish. If you're Scottish, you're worth listening to him. He was a New Testament scholar, and he wrote a commentary in the book of Acts. Here what he has to say about the return of Christ. He says, the second advent of Christ will coincide with the final and complete manifestation of the kingdom. When every knee will bow in his name, and every tongue confess in his Lord. When God's will is to be done on earth as it is done in heaven. At Christ's first coming, the age to come invaded this present age. At his second coming, the age to come will have altogether superseded this present age. Between the two comings, the two ages overlap. Christians live temporally in this present age while spiritually they belong to the heavenly kingdom and enjoy the life of the age to come. That means there's an already not yet reality that we get to, as citizens of heaven, we already have the opportunity to experience the joy of our citizenship in and we really get to look forward to the eternal Sabbath rest that is coming. This is one of the reasons that I emphasize that it is of grand importance to us as the people of God to practice a robust Sabbath. That we would at least one day a week step aside and say, on earth as it is in heaven. So, how does the return of Christ affect the ministry that you're currently involved in between the world? Does it matter to you at all that he's coming back? Does he grant you any hope at all, any strength at all, any courage at all to speak to the things that need to be spoken to? See, I don't think we're going to have the liberty to remain quietly silent and out of view, hoping that no one notices us. If any of you have ever read the play, A Man for All Seasons, I read it recently, and it really kind of scares me a bit because of the, the current nature of our times. If you don't know the work, um, Henry VIII was looking to divorce his wife and get the Pope to go back on the thing he said that he didn't want to say the first time. And he wanted to marry this other girl, Anna Boleyn, because she could potentially give him a male heir. So Sir Thomas More was uh, high up in the governance and was a, what King Henry thought a critical piece to that becoming reality. And Sir Thomas More didn't want to be part of that, but he also didn't want to die either. And so what he tried to do is, is to resign quietly and step back into the shadows and say nothing. And it didn't matter to Cromwell that he didn't say anything because he said, by saying nothing, you said everything. And it cost Sir Thomas More's head. And the end of the play, I'm going to ruin it for you, this is spoiler alert. <laughs> The common man says these, what I find to be harrowing words, after Moore loses his head, 
the common man kind of steps out and he says, you and I are breathing. It's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing to make sure that we know who our friends really are. But it's even more important that if you're going to go against them, to make sure that you go against them in the way that they expect, you're going to lose your head anyway. He steps out. So we do not have the liberty to take and shove our life under a bushel and hope that no one notices who we are. Now, I'm not saying let's run out and tell people they're sinners and dying and, and get on Facebook and tear some people up because that's the most effective way to have a discussion with our friends and neighbors. No. No, I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we must stand for truth. We must be willing to see and care about the eternal reality that many of our neighbors are willing into and which kingdom it is that they're serving. So, as we close out, I want to close with this quote from Dennis Johnson, who's a New Testament scholar who teaches at Westminster. This is from his book, The Message of Acts and the History of Redemption. Let's, let's hear these words and let them sink into us a bit. For those of you who have the bulletin, it's all written down there for you for you to go back and reflect on later today, later this week. But listen to what he says. It's a great challenge. What would change if churches took more seriously Luke's message? The Holy Spirit's message. That the life of the church is the continuing teaching and doing ministry of Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted Lord. Let me just pause for a second. Think about that. Let that sink in for a second. What do you think would change, focus-wise, ministry-wise, governance-wise, if we took seriously what Luke was saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying, what Christ is saying? Jesus is here teaching and doing, preaching and performing the saving work of God through his spirit, gifted people he gives to his church. He will, this affect, how will this affect our hopes for the resolution of conflict in the church? Is there any conflict in the church at large? Are we divided anywhere? We like to fight. We like to send incendiary emails. Flexing our knowledge of this, that, and the other? Are we showing the world who we are by the love we have for one another? I don't want to be long on diagnosis and short on cure. I don't. He goes on to say, our hopes for the fruit of sharing our faith with others, our hope for the discipline, uh, discipling of the world's peoples through missions, because our king is not an aloof designer or absentee landlord, but a living shepherd walking among his sheep, there is hope for change in the church beyond anything human ingenuity can invent. Even my great shuffleboard idea. So what do we should take away from Jesus Christ's exaltation and his ascension? One, that he grants the message of the mission, and that, mission, that message is the kingdom of God. Something that we need to know. Something that we need to understand. He also provides the Holy Spirit and us as his witnesses as the means of that mission. And finally, he promises to come back. He's not just going to leave us in this between the now and the not yet fumbling reality. He's coming back. And that is the hope of our mission. Amen. Yeah.